far north by Dan Barrell illustrations by Kelly Posett Chapter 6 The Big Blizzard One day, which is to say a Tuesday, because all stories involving unexpected situations take place on a Tuesday, Duane went exploring into unknown territory. He'd already explored down toward the ocean, and he'd already explored in the direction east of his cave towards the river, and beyond the river too. Well, almost. But he'd never explored in the opposite direction. On this day, Duane would leave his cave. But instead of turning right, he would turn left and follow where his curiosity led. Duane considered calling upon Handsome, his closest neighbor, to join in the adventure, but he was eager to start his exploring straight away. With Handsome, if he didn't simply say no right off, then there was bound to be many preparations required. One cannot just rush from one's home looking shabby and rumpled and unkempt, Handsome would likely say to Duane. One never knows who one might run into, and appearances do matter. By the time Handsome had finished his face washing and hair brushing and eyebrow tweaking, it would already be noon and lunch would demand attention. No, thought Duane, this exploring will be best done all on my own. And so Duane headed left, and that was that. He walked at a fast clip, feeling quite excited because this was, after all, an excursion into uncharted and unfamiliar. He might discover a new river, or an old mountain, or a glacier of dubious age. He might find a variety of ice perfectly suited for snow delights. That possibility was suggested by Duane's stomach, which was never shy to voice his opinion. But what if he was to encounter some danger along the way in this unknown territory? Imagine stumbling upon monsters, snarling things, hissing things, croaking things. Things that spout fire or smoke, as shown in Cece's books. Monsters like that. Thinking about possible encounters with danger made Duane feel brave, and feeling both excited and brave put a bigger bounce in Duane's step, which kept him going into the unknown territory for quite some time. He was alert and ready for anything. On and on he went, and then on and on he went some more. Eventually, the bounce lessened to a dribble, and a dribble sputtered to a trickle, until finally it was reduced back to his usual lumbering steps. It became more and more evident to Duane that nothing interesting was going to happen. No rivers, no mountains, no snow delights, and no monsters. The snowy land was ever so flat and uninspiring, and went on and on forever, without a glimmer of adventure beckoning over the horizon. Nor did Duane make any new acquaintances along the way, either either passing overhead or passing by, which would have certainly brightened up the experience. Duane stopped inside. Oh, well, he said to himself. Too bad, agreed his stomach. But this was a Tuesday, and as I mentioned, Tuesdays are for unexpected situations. By which I mean that the sky suddenly sagged heavier with clouds laden with trouble, and the wind, feeling mischievous, grew increasingly more powerful. Temperature dropped to a most inhospitable level, and snow started falling in copious amounts, which was then quickly lifted up by the wind so that it fell again and again in swirling waves, blotting out the sun, leaving Duane alone with a ferocious, howling blizzard. "'Oh, dear,' said Duane to himself." 
His stomach had nothing to add. There are mornings when you wake up thinking it's a great day for exploring, and it turns out you were correct. There are other mornings when you wake up thinking it's a great day for exploring, and by afternoon you wished you that the thought hadn't even crossed your mind. Duane found himself among the latter category of mornings. Whoosh! Blew the wind. Click, 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 chattered Duane's teeth in reply. The temperature dropped so low that even with his thick fur, fur Duane shivered in the gasping, biting cold. His eyelids were freezing together, and soon they'd be bound shut as ice pellets whipped his face in all directions. His muscles ached, and his energy was seeping out of him. Duane was exposed and vulnerable to a most dangerous situation. Shelter was required. Duane's blizzard-addled brain was able to muster at least that much of a plan, and so he dug and dug in the rising snow with the goal of hollowing out a snow cave, a place to weather the terrible storm. It was hard work. His arms were stiffening, and he was tiring so quickly. His big, strong paws would soon fail him. Dwayne grunted and moaned, and just when he thought he was making some progress digging in his cave, he came against a sturdy wall of snow buried within the snow. Dwayne was confused. He clawed at the wall, creating a peephole, and through Dwayne's near-frozen-shut eyes he saw a flicker of fire, and his nostrils picked up the smell of smoke and his ears were suddenly assaulted by a discord of barks and growls. Oh my, thought Duane, have I stumbled up against the lair of one of those flame-breathing dragon monsters? He vividly remembered a frightening picture that Cece had shown him. What was he to do? Without shelter he would surely freeze, but protection from the terrible cold lay within the home of some frightful creature. Duane had come to a dilemma. Often described as being stuck between a rock and a hard place, but in Duane's case, he was stuck between a blizzard and a dragon monster. In the last remaining non-addled corner of his blizzard-frozen brain, Duane reasoned with himself. I left the protection of my cave this morning as an explorer. And as an explorer, is it not my job to explore the unknown? And even if that unknown is scary or dangerous, don't I, as an explorer, still have to explore it? Especially if it's a matter of life and death. These were very good questions, best answered by a less frozen polar bear. But more importantly, what the questions did do was make Duane feel brave and heroic by asking them. And with all the strength he could gather, Duane clawed at the snow until he forced his way into the lair, ready to face his unknown fate and at the mercy of the dragon monster. I am Duane! he shouted valiantly. Polar bear explorer in search of the unknown and a little warmth, if possible. But there was no dragon monster before him. There was, however, a young girl in a bright red parka, tending to a fire in the middle of a cozy ice dome, and eight sled dogs sitting attentively beside her. A short pause followed Duane's dramatic entry, in which Duane took in the non-threatening surroundings and lowered his front paws, and at the same time the eight sled dogs relaxed onto their stomachs, and the young girl simply blinked twice. You or I might have responded to a polar bear crashing into our home with a little more alarm, perhaps. And I won't speak for you, but I definitely would have screamed at least once or five times. The young girl, however, did not once scream. She was placid and calm, and the world may well be filled with all sorts of surprises, but she was not one to be filled with surprise when she encountered any of them. There was a perfectly fine entrance on the other side, she eventually said, indicating a snow tunnel behind her. Duane glanced around and nodded. 
I realize that now, he said apologetically. Perhaps I should fill in the hole I made? I think the storm will do it on its own in very little time, said the girl. If you don't mind me saying, you looked rather cold and tired. Come sit by the fire until the weather decides to be friendlier, and we can all go out and about our day. That was about the best suggestion Duane had heard in a long time. And so he flopped down onto the ground with his face near enough to the fire to thaw his ice-covered nose, but not to burn it. It was snug and warm in the cozy snow cave, and outside the wind howled and raged. This time it sounded as if the monster were on the outside. I was exploring unknown territory, Duane explained to his host. I thought nothing interesting was ever going to happen, and then this happened. The young girl in the red parker gave a quick nod of understanding. Tuesdays, she said. Tuesdays, agreed Duane. The ten souls passed the time in friendly conversation. The girl shared dried berries with Duane and kept his stomach content and well-behaved. And the sled dogs, who referred to themselves as the pack, volunteered to sing a few choral pieces, consisting of a lot of yips and howls. Their songs touched Duane, and they made him feel wistful and homesick for his cave and his friends. Sleepiness eventually came over all of them, and without needing to announce it, they all lay close to the fire and close to one another, and slumbered peacefully while the wind's angry tirade lessened. In the morning, Duane volunteered to clear the snow that blocked the girls' tunnel entrance, and all the snow that had accumulated beyond it, too. Outside, the sky was blue and the sun was shining again. The ignored wind, feelings hurt, had already left in search of another audience. The girl loaded up her sled before turning to Duane and saying goodbye. She felt like a friend now, and Duane was always compelled to hug his friends with all his heart. But what if she was the sort who preferred the blinks, like Cece? As Duane fretted over how to say a proper farewell that contained all his gratitude and happiness, and some sadness too, in their separating, he didn't notice that the girl had already stretched her arms as much as they would reach around his waist and laid the side of her head against his fur. Ah, said Duane gently, and gently too he hugged her back. Shortly after, he watched the devoted pack carry the girl and the red parka in the opposite direction from where he was heading. The girl never told Duane her name, but since Duane was good at giving names, he chose to call her Sun Girl. For different reasons, some of them which you might be able to figure out, it would not be the last time that Duane would meet Sun Girl. But he didn't know that yet. He turned toward home, his exploring adventure concluded, and he looked forward to reaching his cave and his soft bed. He looked forward, too, to telling his other friends about his new friend and how they had all coped with this unexpected situation. Chapter 7 When Duane First Met Magic Duane had been requested to attend an afternoon tea hosted by his friend Handsome. The official invitation, which Duane found lying at the edge of his cage, said as much. You are cordially invited to an afternoon tea at the residence of Handsome the Muskox, Esquire, who will host the affair with aplomb and watercress sandwiches, as well as fruit sorbets, shortbread, and tarts. It shall take place three days hence at two o'clock. RSVP at your earliest convenience. Duane was both excited and nervous upon reading it. The consuming of sorbets and tarts and aplomb sounded like a wonderful way to pass an afternoon. But the mysterious RSVP left Duane unsure of what to do. 
He tried saying RSVP out loud a few times, thinking he'd recognize the word if he heard it. It did not help. What did help was when he turned the invitation over. As if Handsome could read Dwayne's mind, he had helpfully written on the back. RSVP is short for Respondez-vous, s'il vous plaît. Which is French for, you must tell me if you could make it, Dwayne, otherwise all my great efforts will have been wasted. Mystery solved. Dwayne now had to walk all the way to Handsome Residence, which was an open field due north, in order to tell Handsome that he would return in three days' time to attend the afternoon tea. Secretly, Dwayne wished they could have the afternoon tea this day, since he was already going to be walking over there. To his way of thinking, it would have been more efficient. But Handsome was a friend, and Duane knew that Hans preferred, as he put it, to obey the rules of etiquette and society in regard to the decorum of social gatherings, both big and small. Duane was not completely sure what any of that meant, but he did know that if there were to be sorbets and tarts and a plum to eat, that he would have to wait for three more days. The way to Handsome's place passed between two long but short hills, now completely covered in fresh and sparkly snow. Looking at all the beautiful wintry scenes of snow and ice made Duane's heart beat strong and happy. So different from Handsome's experience of the season, because winter meant that the reflection pond in the middle of the field was covered over with snow. Idle days of standing at the water's edge staring down at his striking face would have to wait until the spring thaw. Duane suspected that Handsome was feeling a little lonely without his reflection to keep his company, and that's why Handsome was having an afternoon tea. But Duane continued down the path, and he heard a hello coming from the snowbank. "'Hello,' said the snowbank. Duane had never before been addressed by a hill, snow-covered or otherwise, and up until then he would have confidently said that hills do not speak. But that hill had said hello, and then it said hello again. "'Hello!' "'Hello to you,' replied Duane. The snowbank said nothing further. The snowbank had, in effect, returned to being a silent snowbank and Duane decided it was for the best. He had begun to take leave when he heard a hello coming from the opposite snowbank. "'Hello!' said the second snowbank, in much the same voice as the first. "'Hmm,' Duane paused. Because he was recently thinking about Handsome's rules of etiquette and manners, he wondered if perhaps there was a proper way to address a hill, or any other geographical feature. "'How do you do?' was the reply that Duane tried on. The snowbank blinked. Or maybe it twinkled for a split second. Duane wasn't sure. But other than that, it remained quiet. It would seem that how do you do isn't correct either, Duane thought, continuing on his way. And then he was greeted by both snowbanks, over and over, first one side, then the other, sometimes high up on the hill, sometimes at the bottom. Duane offered as many different replies as he could. Hello? Hi? Hello? Greetings? Hello? Good morning? Hello? Um, hey there? Hello? Sorry. I really must be going. Duane tried to be civil, but in truth he found a little bit spooked. So he quickened his pace more and more, until soon he was running away. When he reached the field that his friend called home, Duane confirmed his RSVP to the afternoon tea, which Handsome much appreciated. And then he recounted how he had been spoken to over and over by two snow-covered hills, which Handsome did not appreciate. "'I trust you're not going daft, Duane,' he said impatiently. "'I had an uncle who went daft.' 
The amusement runs thin sooner than one might think, and I don't wish to go to the effort of serving you afternoon tea if you're just going to wear the tea cap on your head like a bonnet and then recite limerick poems. Is that what your uncle did? asked Dwayne, genuinely curious. Do you remember any of the poems? Handsome let out an involuntary snicker before he regained his stiff composure and severely said, No, I do not. And if I did, it would be most improper to repeat them. Now, if you would be so kind, I do have an afternoon tea to prepare for. Duane was not keen on returning home the same way he came because he feared that there would be more hellos to contend with from the hills. And so he decided to take the long way around. And as he was taking the long way around, it occurred to him that he was now close to the mainly frozen cold ocean and the shipwreck where Cece lived. If anyone would know how to greet a geographical feature, it would be her, he said. And so Duane reached the shoreline and crossed the mainly frozen cold ocean until he reached the jagged gash in the bow of the shipwreck that served as a door. He entered and made his way toward the back of the ship and up the stairs until he came to a room. Duane poked his head through the doorway. Cece was perched on the wooden table, looking down at a large open book. "'Hello, Cece. May I interrupt your reading with a question?' "'You already have.' "'Excuse me? And again?' Dwayne was momentarily confused until he realized that by asking if he could ask a question, he was already asking a question. Oh, I see. He tried again. May I interrupt your reading with a question after the question I'm asking right now? Yes, replied Cece curtly. How does one greet a snow-covered hill? Cece blinked her two big eyes twice. The short answer is, you don't. Now, allow me to ask you a question, Dwayne the Polar Bear. Why would you want to greet a snow-covered hill? Grateful that Cece's question wasn't very hard, as they often were, Dwayne wasted no time in answering. Because it said hello to me. Or rather, two hills said hello to me. Many times over, I might add. Dwayne and Cece stared at each other, this time without blinking. Cece let a brief sigh escape. It was not a sigh of contentment. Hills, like all other geographical features, are not in the custom of speaking hellos or anything else. That's what I thought too, Cece, agreed Duane with great relief. I said to myself, Duane, hills or mountains or icebergs do not talk. But then they did. Cece strode across the big oak table toward Duane and pointed one of her wingtips at him. You haven't considered the possibility that there may be another more reasonable explanation for the voices you heard? More reasonable? asked Duane. He paused to mull that consideration over. Then suddenly his face brightened. Of course, he shouted happily. Talking hills? What was I thinking? It must have simply been magic. Cece bowed her head and shook it slowly in disappointment and put Duane's newly acquired relief into question. It wasn't magic? he asked timidly. Duane, the polar bear, I am a scientist, as you well know. I deal with what is. I cannot accept that magic was involved. Bring over that chunk of lapis lazuli sitting on the shelf, and I have something that you can use for your next encounter with the voices. The now chagrined polar bear obediently retrieved the blue rock and followed all of her instructions, which included using a mortar and pestle to crush the rock into a fine blue powder and pouring the powder into a flask and capping it with a cork. Cece then explained what he was going to do when the time came. Thank you, Cece, said Duane, feeling again very relieved. 
and the snowy owl went back to her studies, and Duane took his leave as quietly as possible so as to disturb her no further. As he walked along the ship's corridor past doorways that led into rooms filled with pretty objects, including porcelain plates and decorative silverware, Duane was reminded of Handsome's afternoon tea in three days' time, and it occurred to him that it might be a proper gesture to bring along a gift. He recalled Handsome mentioning it in one of his many lectures on manners. Duane chose a room and rummaged through it for a good long time until he came across an item that he was sure Handsome would like. He even found a small case to present it in, and so with his flask of blue powder and a box containing a present, Duane headed home. Three days later, as the invitation had stated, Duane spruced himself up for what he hoped would be a tasty assortment of treats. He grabbed Handsome's present, which he also spruced up by trying a bright yellow ribbon around it, and he left his cave. A minute later, he returned to the cave to take along the flask of blue powder. Just in case, he told himself. And when Duane reached the point along the path that took him between the two snowy hills, his body tensed in expectation of invisible voices surrounding him again. But he didn't hear a peep. Out of curiosity, he slowed down and listened extra hard. But still, not a voice made itself known. This might have given Duane a degree of comfort if it weren't for the fact that while he was listening, the bright yellow ribbon around Handsome's gift was untying all by itself right before Duane's very eyes. This is even worse than the hills saying hello, he thought while he watched the ribbon come loose and inexplicably fall to the ground. Dwayne jumped back in fear. Hello, said a voice behind him. Dwayne jumped forward in fear. Hello, said the voice just to his right. And at the same time that Dwayne jumped left in fear, a loud, ah, escaped his lips. Dwayne was as scared as if he had seen a ghost which, as it turns out, is what the he assumed he saw. Keeping what few wits he had still left about him, Duane flipped the cork off the flask and flung the contents in the direction of the voice, just as Cece had instructed him to do. A large cloud of blue powder hung in the air, but as the powder settled, Duane could observe the outline of a creature. It was small and furry with rounded ears and a snout, and I can tell you now, that it was an arctic fox, whose fur, generally speaking, is as white as snow, making it extremely difficult to spot in the winter. However, at that moment, its fur was now as blue as the lapis lazuli powder it was now covered in. "'Why did you go and do that?' demanded the fox, most displeased. "'Because I was frightened,' Dwayne explained. "'You scared me!' "'Oh, come on! It was just a joke!' shouted the fox, a little too dramatically, all things considered. "'I just wanted to have a little fun.' "'It wasn't fun for me,' insisted Duane. "'I thought I was going daft. I thought I might end up wearing a teacup on my head and spouting limerick poems.' "'All right, fine, I get it. It wasn't a nice thing to do to a stranger. I'm sorry,' said the fox, slumping herself onto the ground again, very dramatically, and pasting a paw to her forehead.' as if to suggest that she'd just had the most exhausting day. But now, I'm blue, and so we're even. If this was the fox's way of apologizing, it was unrecognizable to Duane. It almost felt as if Duane should feel bad about being scared. More than that, Duane's nerves were still on edge. Where are all the others? The fox, who was still on the ground, sighing heavily under the burden of being misunderstood, suddenly stopped and raised her head. 
What others? The first time we met, I heard hellos coming from both sides of the path, atop the hills and near the bottom, and just now my ribbon was untied in front of me, and then a voice spoke behind me, and then you spoke to my right. Where are all the others? The blue fox was back on her feet, bouncing in front of Duane in sheer delight. Yes, lovely, excellent! You thought there were others? You thought there was more than just yours, truly? Duane nodded cautiously at the sudden bundle of energy. That is what I thought. Oh, yes! Wonderful! But the thing is, the most excellent thing, the thing that I must tell you so that you will be absolutely amazed is... It is just me. And the fox stood still long enough to point to herself with a big, proud smile. Really? asked Duane, as amazed as the fox had predicted. Yes, yes, let me show you. The fox now worked herself into a tizzy of motion. This is where I live, under this hill, and that hill. I have secret doors everywhere. To demonstrate this, for the next minute she proceeded to zip into invisible holes and pop out of other holes at a speed nearly impossible to follow. Duane found himself turning one way, then spinning quickly around, barely in time to see the fox dash between his legs and disappear into yet another hole. None of this would be observable to his eyes if it were not for the lapis lazuli powder that allowed him to see flashes of blue fox set against the white snow. Duane had lost his fear. He was overtaken by another feeling equally as strong. He felt awe. What the fox showed him proved to be a reasonable explanation to the voices that Cece assured him there would be. But nonetheless, to Duane, the illusion the fox had created seemed magical. And now that he saw how it was done, he almost wished he could go back to not knowing. So you see, now, don't you? It was just me doing this all by myself, explained the fox, with her arms stretched out wide. I do, agreed Duane, and he stood there pondering the fox. Since he'd arrived in the very, very far north from somewhere else, he'd made many friends. Cece and Handsome, Sun Girl, and the pack. Could this fox become a friend, too? A friend like her would never be boring, Duane thought. But a friend like that, he suspected, could also be exhausting. It would have to be, as Cece often said, one of those wait-and-see situations, he finally decided. And in the meantime, there was the afternoon tea. I was just on my way to my friend's place. His name is Handsome, and my name is Duane. Would you care to join me? I would like to. I mean, I would really, really love to go, but there is a question of my blueness. I'm not blue by nature, and it would give the completely wrong impression. Duane assured the fox that he could explain everything, and that it might even make an entertaining story to tell while eating sorbets and tarts and a plum. And the prodding eventually did the trick. And while Duane walked to Handsome's place, the fox bounced and ran and occasionally disappeared and then reappeared beside him. And when they arrived, it was clear that Handsome took his hosting duties very seriously. For in the middle of a snowy field was a table, beautifully set with a tablecloth and fancy dishes and cups and a four-tiered serving tray filled with the most mouth-watering of treats Duane had ever seen in his life. The fox bounced around the table, equally enthralled, and Handsome studied her solemnly. "'Who is your blue friend?' he asked Duane. "'I don't know yet,' replied Duane. "'I do know that she isn't actually blue, "'and I hope you don't mind that I invited her without asking.' "'And because Handsome knew that a host must always be gracious, "'he said nothing other than, "'Well, I suppose we'll need another chair, won't we?' 
But if there were any feelings of ill will, they melted away when Duane handed him the present complete with a yellow ribbon bow. Handsome untied the bow and opened the case, and he gasped. Duane had brought him a hand mirror with an ornately carved wooden handle. For the winter months, Duane explained, when the reflection pond is frozen over and covered in snow. Yes, said Handsome, deeply moved, not just by his striking image in the mirror, but by the thoughtful gesture of Duane's gift. Yes, he said again, looking at this time at Duane. Thank you. Uh, when are we going to eat? exclaimed the fox in an overly dramatic fashion that seemed to be how she expressed everything. I am so starved. I'm famished. If I don't eat soon, I may simply die on the spot. Well, we certainly don't want that to happen, said Handsome, pulling himself together. Duane, if you'd be so kind as to fetch another chair, I will pour the tea for us all. And thus began an afternoon tea shared between two friends and a blue fox who wasn't actually blue, and, in fact, would stop being blue once she went home and washed. But she was still an arctic fox, soon to be named Magic. Chapter 8 Magic Goes Too Far Ever since the day that Magic the Arctic Fox became friends with Duane, she'd been coming to his cave. When she dropped by in the morning, Magic would often discover that Duane hadn't yet awoken. And by often, I mean all the time, because Duane tended to sleep in. Come on, Duane! she would holler while attempting to prod him off his mattress. Hmm? Ah, hmm. Uh. Duane would suddenly reply. It was fortunate for Duane that he was such a sound sleeper and far too big for an arctic fox to push out of bed, because Magic would eventually give up and leave, but not before sighing dramatically and exclaiming, How does someone waste the day like that? I mean, really? To which Duane would reply, mm, ah, followed by two loud snorts. On the occasion that Magic visited later in the day, when he was awake, Duane found himself overwhelmed by her energy and exuberance. Finally! You're up! Well, it's about time! Do you know what I've been doing the whole while while you've been snoozing away? Do you? Never mind asking, because it would take another hour to list everything off. Okay, he would reply unsteadily. Duane wasn't sure how he was supposed to respond to Magic when she went on like that. Then again, it didn't really seem to Magic matter if he responded either. What are you having for breakfast? She might ask, and no sooner than Duane would reply with a, oh, I don't know, maybe just a bowl of... Magic would cut him off with, I jumped as high as a muskox the other day and landed right on Handsome's back. You wouldn't think it's possible, but I totally did it. And no sooner than Duane would reply with, that sounds like quite a high jump indeed, that Magic would have moved on to a topic of home renovations for the foxhole. Duane gathered that Magic didn't have a large attention span. Duane once asked Handsome how he handled conversations with Magic, because she would drop by his field whenever Duane was still sleeping. Handsome didn't have any advice to give. Handsome never even noticed that she was talking to him, as he was generally too preoccupied with his own reflection in his new hand mirror. The only time he was made aware of Magic's presence was the day that she jumped on his back. I am not a fan of surprise aerobatics, he told Duane. 
one should not be used as a pubble horse without fair warning. It's simply good manners. Magic was a puzzle to Duane. In some ways, she was loud and bossy and not always considerate. But on the other hand, she was so full of energy and fun and playful. I was thinking, Duane, she might say, always poking him in the ticklish part of his belly whenever she said his name. Wouldn't it be amazing if you, Duane, poke, and I could fly? Wouldn't it, Duane, poke? By the third, third Duane poke, he would be giggling and helpless. But he would also be intrigued by the idea. To fly, like Cece, to look down in the very, very far north from the sky? Oh, yes, I think that would be amazing. Meanwhile, Magic would be running circles around him, shouting happily, Never mind flying like Cece, how about flying like me? And then she would fling herself into the air with her front paws spread out like wings, forcing Duane to react quickly to catch her. And the power of her throw would cause him to fall onto the ground on his back. That, Duaney Duane, poke poke, is how a flying fox flies, she would say, grinning with mischief. On the day that Duane brought her over to the shipwreck to meet Cece for the first time, it was clear that this was not a good idea at all. Before Cece had had the opportunity to study Magic's face, the Arctic fox was running all about her room, opening jars without asking, knocking over research papers, and spilling chemicals that required Cece to quickly open more windows for ventilation. To say that Magic ruffled Cece's feathers was both an understatement and a statement of fact, because at one point she came up to Cece and said, Can you really fly with those wings? I mean, really? If I had wings, they'd be so much longer feathers than those. And as hurtful as those comments were, what made things worse was that as she said them, Magic was lifting up Cece's wings and looking under them. Duane gasped in horror, knowing how much Cece did not like being touched. He rushed over to steer Magic out of Cece's room at once, giving Cece a weak, apologetic smile before closing the door shut. "'Well, that was a nice visit,' declared Magic, demonstrating that she had no awareness of her own behavior. Now, the story that I am about to tell you begins right after those words were spoken. Duane wanted to explain to Magic how Cece would prefer contact of a non-physical variety." But before he could get two words out of his mouth, she was bounding down the shipwreck corridor, peeking into all the other rooms. And this led to an unplanned game of hide-and-seek, in which Duane was trying to find Magic among all the boxes and strange objects. And Magic was sneaking up behind Duane to poke him in the back before rushing off to hide again. The game only stopped because Magic came across a strange object that caught her attention. "'What's that?' She asked Duane when he joined her in the room that contained the strange object. Had Magic asked him about most of any of the other items that filled the rooms, Duane would have had to confess he didn't know what they were. But Magic was looking at a long object made of wooden slats nailed together that curled back on themselves at one end. And because Duane had been curious about the same object on one of his earlier trips to the shipwreck and had once asked Cece this very same question, he knew what that object was. It's a toboggan, he replied, and according to Cece, you can use it to pull supplies along the ice. Or according to me, Magic said with a twinkle in her eye, you could use it to slide down a hill really, really fast. A smile grew on Duane's face as he imagined. I suppose you could. Duaney Duane, poke poke, we've got ourselves an adventure. And so Duane carried the toboggan off the shipwreck and pulled it along the mainly frozen cold ocean towards the snowy shore. 
Magic sometimes sat on the toboggan while Dwayne pulled in. Sometimes she ran around Dwayne when she couldn't sit still any longer because she was too excited thinking about going down the hill. Let's try it on Whaleback Hill, she said, referring to the hill well-named because it indeed looked just like a whale's back. All right, agreed Dwayne. No, scratch that. Let's try it on Double Whaleback Hill said Magic, referring to another hill also well-named because it looked like two whales stacked on top of each other. All right, I guess, Dwayne agreed, slightly less confident. No, wait, shouted Magic, stopping right in front of Dwayne with her paws out. Not double whaleback hill. Not double whaleback hill, Dwayne asked. Magic's voice got very low and very serious sounding. No, Dwayne, poke. What we must go down, what we absolutely, without a chance of changing our minds, must go down is Baby Whaleback Hill. You may be thinking, quite rightly, that after suggesting Whaleback Hill, followed by Double Whaleback Hill, to then suggest tobogganing down something called Baby Whaleback Hill would be somewhat less exciting, not more. And you would be wrong. Baby Whaleback Hill resembled not one, but 100 baby whales piled together in a giant pyramid shape. It was monstrously tall and covered with endless bumps and bulges from top to bottom. Why it wasn't called the mountain of 100 baby whales just goes to show that not everyone is as good at giving names as Duane is. In any case, Duane's concern about magic suggestion was because of what the hill was and not what it was called. I don't know, Magic Baby Whaleback Hill could be too much for us to handle. Ugh, come on, I mean, really? Magic was working herself up into an exceptionally overdramatic outrage. Dwayne, we've dragged a very heavy toboggan all the way from the shipwreck, and I've come up on my own with the most brilliant idea for an adventure. Please do not tell me that you intend to let these great efforts go to waste. Hmm, Dwayne, you're not telling me that, are you? and the force of Magic's determination was like a hurricane gale. It pinned Dwayne into submission, and even though he knew that it had only been him who had been pulling the very heavy toboggan, he didn't feel able to speak up. And even though Dwayne had very serious concerns about the plan that Magic was suggesting, he didn't feel strong enough to argue. No, he replied sheepishly, I'm not telling you that. Good, so let's get climbing, declared Magic happily, as if her last outburst hadn't even happened. Following Magic's lead, Dwayne pulled the toboggan up the steep side of Baby Whaleback Hill, and they climbed and climbed and climbed the snow-covered mountain, reaching a level that was already above both Whaleback and Double Whaleback Hills. But before Dwayne could set the toboggan down for a great adventure ride to begin, Magic stuck out her paw to stop him. Higher, she said. Dwayne gulped. Higher? Magic gave him a mischievous grin before bouncing up the mountainside. Obediently, Dwayne followed, with his heart beating faster, and not just from the exertion of climbing the mountain, but from the mounting fear inside of him. And when he finally caught up to Magic, he again started to set the toboggan down before being stopped. Higher! Magic insisted. But, Dwayne attempted weakly, isn't this too much? Come on, Dwayne, Dwayne, poke, poke. We're nearly there. The voice inside Dwayne was trying to get his attention, trying to tell him to stop and insist they go back down. But Dwayne was not listening to that voice. 
even though he'd known and trusted that voice for as long as he could remember. Magic's voice was stronger, more convincing, and more confident, and Magic's voice held the promise of excitement and adventure, and so Duane followed that voice farther up the steep mountainside as if he were in a spell. They reached an elevation that looked down upon the very, very far north, with a few clouds actually hanging below them, and the shipwreck nothing but a speck seen far off in the distance. Here, declared Magic, pointing at a spot for Duane to place the toboggan. Anxiously he did, and then sat down on it. I will sit in the front, insisted Magic, because I want to experience the complete thrill of the ride. Are you ready, Duane? No, not really, said Duane quietly, but honestly. Well, ready or not, here we go! And Magic yanked both of Duane's arms, causing him to bend forward, and so creating just enough weight on the front end of the toboggan to tip it into motion. And they were off, heading down the terrifyingly steep incline, picking up speed with each passing second. Bump! Whoa! They both cried after hitting the first of many knobs and swells along the way. Bump! Ka-bump! Ka-bump! Bump! Bump! Whoa! Dwayne cried again, this time on his own. They were barely staying on the toboggan. Each bump lifted them a few inches above it so that it gave Dwayne a true sensation of flying, or maybe just falling, falling very quickly from a very tall height. In any case, it was a new feeling, and the great fear that Duane had as they climbed up the mountain was being overtaken and replaced by something more powerful, the feeling of exhilaration. The ride was reckless and wild. It was madness, but as the seconds continued with the toboggan still rushing down at supersonic speed and the bumps tossing them up again and again, they still hadn't crashed, and this created in Duane a very odd sense of security. Maybe it's going to be okay after all, he thought. Bump, ka-bump, bump, ka-bump, bump, bump, ka-bump. Each bounce fed Duane a jolt of electricity, and there he was, rushing down a mountainside with the whole world blurring around him. He felt unstoppable, invincible. He gave in to the excitement. Woo-wee, he shouted with glee. Bumpity bump, ka-bump, ka-bump, bump, bump, ka-bump. Woo-hoo, Duane shouted louder. Magic, isn't this fun? It was then that he noticed how quiet Magic had become. Since she was sitting in front of Duane, he couldn't see how big her eyes had grown shortly after they pushed off the ledge. He couldn't see how hard she was clenching her teeth and how hard she was both grasping and pushing against the curl of the toboggan as they hurled through the thrilling ride that was, as she pointed out early, her own brilliant idea. Magic did not speak because Magic was in the deep throes of terror. But then Magic did speak. It wasn't loud at first, and it was directed more to herself than to Duane. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. What? asked Duane. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. What was that? Duane was straining to hear over the whoosh of the toboggan sliding over the snow and ice. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Magic, you'll have to speak louder. And then Magic did speak louder, at the top of her voice, in fact. I can't do this, Duane! She screamed just before she tossed herself off the side of the toboggan. Time instantly expanded, at least it did for Duane at that moment, and the world relaxed into a slow, steady beat, like the drip of an icicle on a cold, cloudy day. Duane twisted his neck around following Magic's sudden departure, watching the whole whole unexpected episode unravel before his eyes in slow motion. 
Magic jumped, and then she tumbled head over heels once, then twice, then three and a half times until she came to a complete stop on her back, splayed into the snow like a fox-shaped cookie cutter. The last thing Dwayne saw as he continued to plummet down the steep mountainside was Magic, sitting up, giving herself a shake, and then waving cheerfully at Dwayne without a care in the world. It was a happy image, and Dwayne gave a sigh of relief for Magic while he turned toward the front of the toboggan, toward the portion of the thrilling adventure ride that was still unfinished and awaiting. And at that very moment, when he did turn back around, time snapped like a stretched elastic band, and it returned Dwayne back to the ridiculous speed of the runaway toboggan that was hurtling him down the side of Baby Whaleback Hill, so badly named, all things considered, and the fear that Dwayne had set aside earlier so as not to spoil the fun was back now, bigger than ever. Dwayne was very, very afraid. And to top it all off, he was now very, very alone. Bump, thumpity thump, kabump, 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 thump. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, thought Dwayne. This will surely be the end of me. Why did I listen to magic? Bump, somebody thump, bump, thump. The toboggan hit a much larger protrusion that sent it, along with Dwayne, high into the air, and on a slant as well. And Dwayne had to lean over to the opposite side to bring the toboggan squarely back into the snow. Thud. Dwayne averted what might have been a terrible crash, but the thrilling ride did not slow down. And even if he'd had the wits about him to jump off the toboggan like magic, he could not, for there was no time. The big thumps were coming one after another now. Bumpery thump! Bumpery thump! And Dwayne was leaning every which way to keep the toboggan upright and keep himself from injury, and the thuds of the toboggan hitting the ground each time felt so hard, and Dwayne was bruised and sore all over. But just below him, approaching very fast, was the bottom of Baby Whaleback Hill. If he could hold on a little bit longer, there would be an end to the scariest thing that he had ever done in his whole life. The gentle comfort of hope in Dwayne's heart could only be felt in tiny spurts between the thumps and thuds. But steadily, steadily, the steep incline did level off, and Dwayne was not going down so much as straight. Yes, this was indeed a true moment of hope and relief for the poor polar bear, or at least it would have been except for two things. The toboggan had barely slowed down at all, and directly in its path was the much smaller, but still not insignificant, whaleback hill. Dwayne and the toboggan shot up whaleback hill with gracefulness of a swooping bird, and after they quickly reached the summit, and then they went up and over the hill, it was as if Dwayne had been launched into space. He truly was flying now, and there was nothing but sky around him, and higher and higher the toboggan went but also slower and slower. And for a brief moment, Duane experienced absolute silence, which was peaceful, but also dreadful, because that was the moment that he and the toboggan, so far above the ground, finally stopped. After that, it was all about falling. Duane let go of the toboggan, because there really was no point in them staying together at this point. He wished the toboggan well and forced his own descent. As he was very high in the air, there was plenty of time for him to think before he hit the earth. And so he did. I really don't think I'm as much of an adventuring polar bear as I am an exploring polar bear, Dwayne considered. I should try to remember that if I live through today. But if I don't survive, I wish to acknowledge how much I miss my friends, Cece, Handsome, and even Magic. Oh, and let's not forget Sun Girl and the Pack. Speaking of which, isn't that Sun Girl and the Pack just below me? What are they holding, I wonder? 
the answer to the last question that Duane had managed to ask is that they were holding a large blanket by the edges, all of them, Sun Girl using her hands and each member of the pack using their teeth, and the blanket was stretched out as tight as they could pull. Whoomp! Duane hit the center of the outstretched blanket. Boing! Duane bounced off the stretched blanket. Thud! Duane landed decisively, but safely, in a patch of nearby snow. The very much alive polar bear stayed in the snow on his back as Sun Girl and the pack gathered around him. "'You've been having an adventure, Duane,' said Sun Girl. "'I have,' agreed Duane. "'I toboggan down Baby Whaleback Hill.' "'We saw you,' said the pack in unison. "'It's not very well named,' Duane suggested.' We agree, said Sun Girl, and every member of the pack but one who blushed and looked embarrassed. It's more of a mountain. I shouldn't have gone down it, said Duane. It was dangerous, and I knew it was dangerous, but I pretended that I had forgotten, for I was in trying to impress a friend. Sun Girl nodded in understanding. How did that work out? It took Duane a few weeks to recover from his adventure. There were bumps and bruises everywhere that needed to heal. And during that time, Magic continued to drop in, boisterous and loud as always, and never a mention of the toboggan ride. Duane had already forgiven her, for Duane's heart was incapable of holding a grudge. He would accept Magic for who she was, bossy yet playful, self-centered yet fun, but he would not forget who he was either, and he would not forget how to say no. Chapter 9. Major Puff Finds a Home and a Hair The story I'm about to tell you introduces a new, soon-to-be friend of Duane's. But Duane is not in this story, because Duane was not the first to meet her. It was Major Puff who had the honor. It happened in the spring. Upon returning to the very, very far north from his migration, that was not at all a holiday, Major Puff was again in need of a home. Building it himself was not an option. A puffin who had descended from a long line of military heroes could not be expected to perform manual labor. Digging a burrow was naturally and literally beneath him, and so the only remaining choice was to seize a home already dug. This required time and effort. Let me remind you that Major Puff was a puffin whose ancestors were responsible for winning half a dozen wars, not to mention 28 significant battles and countless skirmishes of various importance. Therefore, he had standards. Cleanliness was a priority, as was ample space for marching, which he practiced regularly and often, and also on the list, and quite frankly at the top of the list, was abandonment. The burrow needed to be empty. Not to say that he wouldn't be willing to take a burrow by force if necessary, for the blood of conquerors for flowed vigorously through his veins. But it seemed that each and every case, the burrow, most to his liking, was one in which no one was currently living. He marched from one spot to another, inspecting a burrow here and a burrow there, but none passed muster. He visited burrows he'd lived in from past years, but they looked worn and tired now. They lacked what Major Puff deemed the proper puffin panache. As the day drew closer to an end, he began to have doubts. He scolded himself for taking the migration that was in no way a vacation, even though he didn't really have to migrate. 
Had he stayed the winter, he'd still have his old burrow. Had he stayed, that old burrow would have been clapped clean and proper. And at the very least, had he stayed, he'd still remember where he left it, which now he could not. Any lesser awk might have called it quits, but Major Puff was not a lesser awk. He expanded his territory. He sharpened his senses. He remained alert. At twilight's cusp, Major Puff believed he at least had found success. A burrow was situated in a beautiful meadow, recently released from its snow covering. The door was simple, but solidly built, an important consideration if and when under siege. And so, with chest puffed out and breath held in, he entered. And to his relief, nothing happened. He was not set upon by unreasonable hordes or ambushed by sneaky types. He was not compelled to offer stuttering apologies for trespassing or make hasty panicked retreats in the heroic fashion of his parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. The burrow, it seemed, was empty. And even better, the burrow was very, very large. Excellent, he thought to himself. Plenty of room for marching in all directions. My skills will not be allowed to wither. One final test remained before Major Puff could give his stamp of approval. He spread a wing and allowed it to run along the floor. Inspecting his feather tips, he let out a contented sigh. Not even a speck of dust, he said out loud. I should hope not. I've spent the better half of a day cleaning the place. Eek! replied Major Puff very loudly to the voice coming from the far corner of the room. It was the proper response, mind you, quite customary to the particular warrior clan to which Major Puff belonged. But the owner of the voice, a small furry white hair with longish ears, didn't seem to care. Perhaps I clean too much? I worry about such things. What if I've made the place completely sterile? Shouldn't a home have a little bit of bacteria lying about? Major Puff was truly bewildered. He stared at the hare, who in turn stared back, apparently waiting for an answer. I, I, I do not know, madam, said Major Puff. I err more toward cleanliness, I suppose. His response seemed to satisfy the hare, who gave a series of quick, small nods among an assortment of other twitches and jerks that never ceased. It looked as if she was in a constant state of noticing danger, then assessing danger, and then finally dismissing the now non-danger to make way for possibly worse danger about to strike. Major Puff found it exhausting just watching her. Agreed. Better safe than sorry. Look, before you leap, a stitch in time, a bird in the hand, and a sneeze in the wind, yes? If you say so, offered Major Puff, having absolutely no idea what she was talking about. It didn't matter. Disappointment set in for Major Puff. He had no reason to continue this conversation. He took a final glance around the spacious, very clean, very secure burrow with a sad and heavy heart. It was simply not to his taste. And it had nothing to do with it already being inhabited by a very talkative hare. No, not at all. Major Puff would not hesitate to claim ownership if he really wanted the almost perfect burrow. He would not be afraid because a puffin of his lineage has no fear. So there was likely some other very good reason why he was leaving. But what that reason was, he couldn't presently say. He clicked his feet together, made a 180-degree turn, and began a slow march toward the door. "'Do you live near here?' the hare shouted after him. "'I'm new to the area, just arrived. Chose this spot. Thought it was least likely to bring calamity and destruction upon myself. But you never know for sure, do you?' Major Puff wanted desperately to leave the burrow with the unpardonable yet invisible flaw as soon as possible. 
but he detected genuine worry in the hare's voice. So heroically, he turned 180 degrees again and addressed her. It's quite safe, madam, I assure you, Major Puff said with authority. Although I've just returned from my most recent migration and I've visited the area many times and I've never took issue. The hare's ears perked up. Oh my, you flew here? Oh my, oh my, that was very brave. Yes, very courageous. Couldn't see myself up in the sky. For Major Puff to be told that he was brave and courageous was nothing new. He said as much to himself each and every day. But to hear those words come from someone else was an entirely exotic experience, and he was caught off guard. Oh, it, it's no big deal, Major Puff replied. The hare would hear none of it. No big deal. All that wind, all that rain, not to mention the height. And you've done this more than once, my goodness. I've never been in the company of someone so brave. Really? Major Puff asked, genuinely amazed. And then seizing the moment, he added, Well, yes, I suppose one could see these trips as hazardous. The distance I cover is staggering, and I never know if a meal awaits me at the end of a long day of flapping or if a hurricane might descend upon me without warning. There is risk, there is danger, but one does what must be done. And Major Puff was delighted to find the hare listening with rapt attention. Her eyes were wide open and her front paws covered her mouth to muffle any cries of shock. Major Puff felt it was beyond flattering. It was as if he had walked into a surprise birthday party in his honor. Or so he had imagined, never having been actually given one. I should take my leave, he said gallantly. The sting of losing the burrow, not so sharp now. He bowed his head. You could stay, you know. Major Puff wasn't sure he heard correctly. I beg your pardon? Just saying. Lots of room, very clean, maybe too clean, but still comforting to have a brave soul about. I'd feel protected. Major Puff's heart skipped a beat. There were rumblings in his chest area, and a giggle escaped his beak which made him blush. Having never experienced glee before, it threw Major Puff off balance. But regaining self-control, he made it clear that he wasn't a puffin who compromised on discipline. Let there be no mistake, Major Puff began. If I stay, I will practice my marching every morning and sometimes at night as well. Well, that's a bonus for me, isn't it? I'm a hopper myself, love to hop. Good for the circulation, so I'm told, in moderation. But marching would be a nice change of pace. Another giggle escaped Major Puff's beak. Glee was turning into joy. I've set myself up in a room down there that tunnel, the hare said, pointing. But there are five other rooms to choose from down each of those tunnels. You've dug all of this yourself, madam? The hare shrugged and smiled. Nervous energy. Major Puff paused. It was highly unusual for a puffin of his caliber to share his residence with a stranger. Yet, aside from his military prowess, manners, and charity were two other merits that defined his noble lineage. How could he evict this poor hare out into the elements, especially knowing that she had built the burrow herself? No, Major Puff had to rise to the occasion. He had to break from tradition. I accept your offer, madam, if the agreed terms are honored. And they were. In fact, every evening after a celebratory cup of tea, Major Puff took up his marching practice around the burrow while the hare looked on in quiet 
yet twitchy are. Chapter 10. The hare gets her name, Dwayne takes charge, and Major Puff has quite a day. So it was that Major Puff had made the hare's acquaintance first. Neither Dwayne, nor Cece, nor Handsome, nor Magic had yet laid eyes on her. And although Dwayne and Handsome met Major Puff back in the autumn, it was a brief meeting and, as you may recall, not altogether friendly. Since then, Dwayne had been exploring more and more of the very, very far north, including the other side of the river, where Major Puff and the Hare now shared a burrow. It was on one such walkabout that he crossed the Hare's path. And let's begin this story just before that happened. Dwayne strolled through the meadow, made gloriously thick with grasses and wildflowers brightened by the springtime sun, and the plants he recognized he named out loud in Latin, as Cece had taught him from her books. Look, there's saxifrag and spit on toes, and over there there's a bunch of saxifrag hop, or sidif holly. Dwayne was of course pronouncing the names wrong because they were in Latin, and Latin is hard to pronounce. He should have said Saxifragia crescipitosa and Saxifragia opistifolia. But between you and me, don't you think it would be easier if he just said, Look, there's a bunch of pretty white and yellow flowers, and over here is a bunch of basically the same flower, but only in purple. Well, I do. However, in the spirit of compromise, Duane will use common names of flowers, and I will add descriptions. So let's start again. Duane strolled through a meadow made gloriously thick with grasses and wildflowers brightened by the springtime sun. The plants that he recognized he named out loud, describing them as he saw fit. There are some white mountain avens, he said, pointing at flowers with eight creamy white petals surrounding a yellow center with bright filaments. And there's a bunch of purple paintbrushes, he said, pointing at flowers that are pretty self-explanatory, I should think. And that is a field of cotton grass, Duane sighed, looking up the gentle slope densely dotted with puffs of white hairballs that swayed in the breeze. Only it was not cotton grass, or at least not all of the white furry stuff was. Hopping up and down in one spot among the cotton grass was an equally white and furry creature. It was the arctic hare that currently shared a burrow with Major Puff. Twenty-eight? said the hare at the top of her twenty-eighth hop. Twenty-nine, she said, at the top of her next hop. Thirty, she said. Well, you get the picture. Between hops thirty-one and forty-six, Duane paused to consider. He was reminded of his first encounter with Magic, another small white creature who appeared and disappeared right in front of him. But Magic was trying to trick him, which didn't seem to be the case with the hare currently hopping up and down. For one thing, she was staying in place and not moving about. For another, she hadn't yet seen Duane because she was facing the other direction. Forty-seven, she announced at the top of her latest hop, and then she spotted Duane as she was coming down, managing to get in an oh before disappearing beneath the grass. In a blink, she was rising up again, continuing what she was saying. This repeated over and over each time she was visible. It broke her sentences into small portions. I didn't see. You coming? Don't. Mind. Me? I'm just getting in. My daily deep knee hops. I try to do a hundred good for the circulation. I'm told. Just saying. All of this she related cheerfully between hops 48 and 58. 
Dwayne was delighted to have met someone new in the very, very far north. He attempted a response between hops 61 and 65, but found that the hair rising and falling was making conversation very difficult. Hello to you. Uh, there you are. Uh, I was, when I meant to say, do you think, oh my, it didn't go as well as he had hoped. Not willing to give up, Dwayne instead took a different approach. He crouched down in preparation, and then from hop 70 through 76, he rose up in the air just as she did and landed at the same time, too. Hello, my name is Dwayne, and I was wondering if you might stop hopping for a moment, please. And that did the trick. 77, declared the hare, continuing her exercise. 77 will do. Not a hundred, but no point in being a stickler, right? Said your name is Dwayne. Lovely to meet you, Dwayne. Don't have a name personally. Wish I did. I can see the benefits of having a name. Getting one's attention at a distance. Personalizing a birthday cake and such. Major Puff calls me Madam. Very courteous, Major Puff. A real gentleman. Madam is nice. Not warm, though, as a name. Not familiar. If you get my meaning. Just saying. Are you too acquainted? Am I sorry? What? Dwayne, who was already dizzy from the jumping and was now finding the hare's quick, clipped way of talking equally unbalancing, not to mention all the twitches and ticks that accompanied her speech. The hare had since moved on to leg stretches and alternate swivels of the waist. Have you met Major Puff? she asked. In his head, Dwayne went through a list of everyone he'd encounter, which wasn't a long list. The name sounds familiar, but I'm not completely sure. Could you describe him? Black and white, orange beak, my size more or less. Has wings, that's important. And a marcher. Oh, yes, very serious about his marching. I'm taking lessons. At which point the hare stopped her stretching and proceeded to march back and forth, with her very long back feet alternating thrusting high in the air. Oh, yes. Major Puff, Dwayne nodded. Dwayne knew exactly who she meant, because he now remembered the incident when Major Puff prevented Handsome from crossing the river. So he told the whole story to the hare. So Major Puff thinks your friend is a great black-beaked gull? Afraid so. Oh, well that might explain the reluctance. The reluctance? Dwayne asked. The hare clarified while Dwayne concentrated very hard on understanding her clarification. Doesn't get out much, the Major. Stays close to home, poor dear. I suggested an outing once. Let's cross the river, I said. Have a picnic. Get some air. Picnics are nice, don't you think? An excursion and a nibble? A break in the routine? Just saying. Well, the Major was strongly against it, concerned about traps and ambushes. Silly, really, having wings and all. He could just fly over the traps if he wanted. Still, not one to judge, not one to throw carrots, lest you want carrots thrown at you, if you get my meaning. Nguyen did not get her meaning, or several of the other bits either, but he did get the gist of what she was saying, which was that Major Puff was not venturing far from their burrow because he was afraid of Handsome. Major Puff was still under the impression that Handsome was a great black-beaked gull, which Handsome definitely was not. Therefore, Major Puff was preventing himself from living his life based on a fear of an enemy he hadn't yet battled. From Duane's point of view, this was a shame. He thought that Handsome and Major Puff shared common qualities which might become good friends under the right circumstances. We need Major Puff to meet Handsome properly, said Duane. He has to be convinced that Handsome is a muskox. 
Ooh, could be a problem, said the hare, shaking her head. If the major has never met a musk ox while in sight of a great black-beaked gull, he has nothing to compare it to, you see? Duane nodded. The hare was right. As Cece once explained, some facts need to be demonstrated in order to be believed. Thinking of Cece gave Duane an idea. How does Major Puff feel about owls, he asked, his plans starting to take shape. Respects them, yes. No issues with owls, as far as I know. The next morning, Duane swam over to Shipwreck to pay Cece a visit. As usual, he found her in the windowed room at the back, conducting experiments for the advancement of knowledge toward the benefit of all. Do you have a picture book with a great black-beaked gull in one of your books, Cece? A great black-beaked gull? Hmm, she thought, and thought, yet could not say for sure whether there was such a picture. Neither stymied nor frustrated, the owl's eyes grew half a size bigger, and she let out a squeak of excitement. You see, it was a rare occasion when Duane came to her with a question that required research. Cece loved research. Methodically, she began leafing through the pages of her books. When one book had been scrutinized from front to back, Duane would remove it and set another one on the table in front of her. It took the whole morning until she could finally stop and say, Aha! And Duane stood beside her and looked down at the spot she was pointing to. Is that a great black-beaked gull? It is indeed, said Cece with a touch of pride. You're sure? Duane asked. Cece studied Duane's face. Although she wasn't good with expressions and feelings, she had an inkling of suspicion that there was something more to Duane's request. "'Why is it so important that I be sure it's a great black-beaked gull, Duane the polar bear?' "'Because I need you to dress up as one,' Duane replied. "'As you can imagine, an explanation was in order, and after an explanation was given, "'Duane left the shipwreck with two of Cece's books, "'having promised solemnly to take the most absolute best care of them "'so that they would return to her in the exact same condition that they had left.' In the afternoon, Duane searched out his friend, the Arctic Fox. Magic, I need you to help me play a trick. Yes, shouted Magic with glee, not caring in the least what the trick was or upon whom it was to be played. It's going to be great, Duane. Poke. The best, Duane. Poke. They will never see it coming, Duane. Poke. Magic's enthusiasm did not give Duane comfort. He realized that rules would need to be established from the start. He looked at magic with the most serious expression he could produce. No one is to be hurt or injured or even bruised. Huh? said magic, much less happily. No one is to be made to look foolish? Really? asked magic, slightly confused. And no one is to be made terribly scared, either. Oh, come on! yelled magic, throwing herself to the ground dramatically. Not even scared? What's the point, then? Duane could see that he was losing Magic's interest, and in all honesty, he couldn't guarantee that that last rule would be kept if his plan was to work. Well, he might be scared, he began. It's possible he'd be a little scared, or more than a little, in fact. It's possible he might become very scared at one or two moments, but in the long run, I think it will be for the benefit of all. Would you be willing to assist me? Magic was up on her paws in a second. You had me at might be scared, Duaney Duane, pokey poke. And with that, Duane explained to Magic what he had in mind and what he needed her to do. In the evening, Duane met up with the hare back in the meadow to go over the details of the plan. 
Tomorrow morning, come to the river's edge where the stepping stones are, he instructed her. River's edge. Stepping stones. Understood. Which side? Which side? asked Dwayne. Of the river, the hare explained. Remember the story your friend Handsome, was it? Didn't like the stones. Crossing them and all made him dizzy. So best to meet on your side. Just saying. Not a fan of rivers myself. Strong currents, sneaky waterfalls, nasty ways to get hurt. But I won't object if it's for Major Puff. Greater good and such. Half a dozen hops and it's done. So, tomorrow morning, River's Edge, your side. Duane marveled at how the hare had recalled all of the details of Handsome's river crossing and was willing to ignore her own fears in the assistance of Handsome and Major Puff. She may jolt and jerk and speak in bits, but you can't say she isn't truly listening. And as the hare turned to hop back to the burrow, Duane had an inspiration. It was risky, but Duane was in a risky frame of mind since taking charge of this plan. How about Twitch? The hare turned around and tilted her head to one side. You told me yesterday you wanted a name. Something personal. How about Twitch? The hare paused to think it through out loud. Twitch is something I do. Won't deny that. I do other things too, mind. Hop, bake, march. I wouldn't want to be called hop or bake. None of them ring to my ears. No music. And not right to be called march, stepping on the major's toes then, so to speak. Twitch is personable. Has a humor in it. I could hear myself being called Twitch. What you got bacon there, Twitch? That sort of thing. The hare suddenly stopped. She looked straight at Duane, as still and solid as an iceberg, and he could feel her formidable strength within the question she asked next. You're not laughing at me, are you? Not at all. You said you'd like a name that was warm and personal. I'm laughing with you, not at you, but only if you like that. First the hare said nothing. Duane wondered if his risk-taking had gone too far, until... Twitch it is, then, the hare nodded before heading home, and twitch it will be from here on out. Early the next morning, Duane awoke, ready to put the plan into action. He ate a quick breakfast to fortify himself before venturing down the hill to Handsome's field, where the muskox stood, sleeping next to the reflection pond. Handsome, come quick, Duane yelled. Hmm? What? Did someone... Duane, why are you here? I am confused. Poor Handsome. He'd been dreaming of a fancy ceremony for the most attractive muskox award, and just as he was about to receive the first-place statuette... Duane came barging on stage. Duane, of course, could not know this was Handsome's dream, and even if he did, it would not matter. For Duane, it was best if Handsome was off balance and not quite awake. Handsome, there is a hair emergency that needs your attention. What did you say? A hair emergency? Oh my, how hair terrible. I should explain to those of you who are presently being read to, rather than those of you who are reading this yourself, that Duane said a hair, H-A-R-E, emergency, as in an urgent situation involving a rabbit-like creature such as Twitch. But Handsome thought that Duane said a hair, H-A-I-R, emergency, that involved filaments such as fuzz, or fur, or wool, or whatever grows off one's skin. Duane did not attempt to correct the misunderstanding because Duane knew how important grooming was to Handsome, and if his friend should think that he was talking about a hair, H-A-I-R, situation, well, so be it, for it would generate the urgency needed to get to the next part of his plan. Duane continued with as much dramatic flair as he imagined magic would use. There's a creature, small and innocent. Her fur is uh, very soft and delicate. Yes, yes, go on, insisted Handsome, already caught up in this description. She's ensnared in a tangle of weeds, and they're caught within her fur, and she cannot escape. Handsome. 
Oh, my, gasped the muskox, in near shock. The poor dear, the damage that those weeds must be doing to her follicles. I shudder to think. I, I wanted to help Hansom. I wanted to free her of those terrible and thorny weeds, but I just did not feel up to the task. Hansom, now fully awake, addressed his friend in the most solemn tone of voice. You did well to call upon me, Duane. No amateur should attempt a weed extraction. One wrong move and a patch of fur might be ripped right out. Fetch me my hairbrush. We must go to this poor creature's aid at once. So focused was Hansom on the rescue mission that he didn't even hesitate as they neared the river, even though he had nothing but bad memories of the place. Was it a relief for him to find the creature in peril located on his side of the river? I cannot say for sure. He may very well have crossed the stepping stones anyway when the matter involved emergency grooming. But prior to Handsome and Duane's arrival, Twitch had made her way across the river to place herself among a thicket of weeds. Just as planned, she made sure that the weeds were wrapped around her legs and ears so she looked completely trapped. And when she caught sight of Duane and his musk ox companion, she declared aloud to her woeful situation, "'Help me! Trapped I am! Not comfortable! All brambly and such! Very scratchy! Prickly too! Just saying!' "'Fear not, madam!' said Handsome, coming quickly forward. "'Her name is Twitch, actually,' Duane whispered. "'Ah, well then, fear not, Twitch. I shall free you at once. It is a delicate operation. Try to stay calm and still, and, well, less twitchy.' And Handsome took the hairbrush from Duane and began to meticulously clear away the weeds from Twitch's fur. His concentration was impressive, as was his brushing skill. Meanwhile, on the other side of the river, Magic had arrived just outside the burrow belonging to Major Puff and Twitch, and quietly she cleared her throat and did a few limbering-up exercises in preparation for her task. She moved next to the burrow's door, took a deep breath, and let out a bone-chilling scream at the top of her lungs. Magic was so loud that she didn't hear the thump of Major Puff's head hitting the burrow ceiling when he jumped in fright. Magic then recited the speech she had practiced with all the dramatic flair that Duane had attempted earlier. "'Oh, who will save her? Who will save this defenseless arctic hare about to be attacked and perhaps eaten by that fiend?' Her performance was both powerful and convincing. Major Puff, who after hearing the blood-curdling scream thought he was under attack, had pushed up against the door to block any burrow breach. But as soon as he heard mention of an arctic hare, he rushed up and down all the burrow tunnels in search of Twitch, whom he, of course, could not find.' "'My goodness,' Major Puff fretted. "'Madame is in peril.' He pulled open the burrow door and marched outside, where Magic was positioned with a paw to her forehead, mouth agape, trembling in fear and wobbly. "'Thank goodness someone has heard my cry.' "'Where is she? Where is Madame? And who dares attack her?' demanded Major Puff. "'She is yonder, by the river's edge,' replied Magic. "'A little too flowery, in my opinion.' "'But what vile creature attacks her, I know not. "'It is large and horrible, and its back is black, and such claws. "'Who will save her?' "'Magic collapsed to the ground in a dead faint and tried not to giggle. "'As for Major Puff, the description of Twitch's attacker was clearly understood. "'After his harrowing ordeal back in the autumn, "'and after the necessary migration that was not in any way a holiday that followed, "'he returned to the very, very far north, realizing his enemy was still at large.' Yes, 
He had made a friend in Twitch, but in the recent weeks he hadn't strayed far from the burrow, fearing the unfinished war to come. In his own estimation, he had behaved cowardly. But not now. Now something was different. Major Puff's eyes narrowed in steely determination. So we shall meet again, the great black-beaked Gaul. Attack, madam, will you? Not on my watch. In the recorded annals of Puffin military campaigns, never did a Puffin march into battle with such dignified grit. How his feet lifted in perfect form. The rhythm of his steps never faltered, never slowed. Major Puff almost pitied his enemy, who knew not what was coming. Marching across the meadow, down its gentle slope, leaving a swath of purple paintbrushes and cotton grass in his wake, he pushed toward the river. And there, in the distance, Twitch lay on the far side, while just behind her loomed the great black-beaked gull with one of its claws brushing down upon her back. "'Unclaw her!' Major Puff shouted across the river. Handsome looked up from his brushing and weed untangling, first in surprise and then in annoyance. "'Oh, it's you again,' Handsome said in a low, snooty voice. "'I have no time for your nonsense. This poor creature is in trouble.' "'Don't I know it? Lower your claw!' "'My what?' asked Handsome. "'This? This is called a brush. "'At least that's what it is called by those of us who are civilized.' "'The black and white puffin turned red in the face. "'Your taunts do not hurt me. "'Let this battle begin.' "'By this point, Twitch was feeling slightly guilty. "'She should have said something to calm Major Puff's nerves. "'But the truth was, all that brushing of her fur felt wonderful "'and left her in a blissful daze and completely speechless.' Major Puff interpreted her silence to mean that she was perhaps near death. "'I shall save you from this great black-beaked gall, madame,' he cried as he hopped across the river rocks. "'Again? With the great black-beaked gall? Do I have wings? How many times must I tell you that I am a musk-ox?' Handsome shouted at the charging Puffin. "'If there is anyone likely to be the great black-beaked gall, my guess is it's whatever that is.' Handsome was now pointing up at the sky. Major Puff followed his direction and saw something that caused him much confusion, followed quickly by fear. Swooping down upon him with sharp talons thrust out was a large bird, covered mainly in white feathers except for its back, which is decidedly black, and its beak. Its eyes were small and beady, and immediately the description of the Puffin's nation's most notorious enemy, as handed down from one Puffin generation to the next, flooded Major Puff's memory. The thing flying above him did meet that description very well. Had he been wrong in assuming that the large creature now attacking Twitch was that very gull? Was the creature indeed a musk-ox, as it claimed? And was it in fact holding a brush and not a claw? Major Puff had to concede that it was, on both accounts. Under different circumstances, a puffin of his integrity would have immediately apologized to Handsome. This, however, had to be put off until a later date, due to the actual great black-beaked gall snatching him in mid-flight and lifting him by talons high up into the air. "'Unhand me, you dastardly villain!' Major Puff demanded. "'Unhand me right now!' These were brave words, without a doubt, shouted up at an enemy much larger and much stronger. Yet, even within the mighty clutch of... The great black-beaked gull's talons, which left him powerless as he was flown through the air, Major Puff couldn't help but notice that up close his enemy much, looked much less impressive. For one thing, 
Its back was splotchy, as if its feathers had been painted. And for another thing, its long beak seemed to be attached to its head by a string that tied in a bow in the back. And as for the beady eyes, in truth, they looked like holes cut out of a mask. I must be delirious, Major Puff thought to himself. All this excitement has left me dizzy. No matter, as long as Madame is safe. And the chivalrous Puffin lost himself in imagining his heroic death. Unaware that the great black-beaked gull had descended from the sky, talons opened, and Major Puff was released. He fell, but only briefly, into the large open arms of Duane, there to receive him. "'Hello again, Major Puff,' Duane said, smiling, and gently lowered the Puffin to the ground. Already gathered in front of the polar bear and the Puffin were Magic and Handsome and Twitch. And as you can imagine, here too, an explanation was in order.' To assist Duane in explaining, he brought over the two books belonging to Cece, and turned the pages that showed the illustrations and descriptions of both the great black-beaked gull and the muskox. And from that point on, there was never any confusion in Major Puff's mind as to who was which. And he turned then to Handsome and apologized sincerely and humbly. "'Think nothing of it,' replied Handsome, quite moved. "'Your eloquent words prove you are a puffin of good breeding, and I look forward to future conversations.' "'Expect an invitation in the mail.' "'Well, all's well that ends well,' Twitch beamed. "'The Major's got a new friend, and I've got a name. "'Happy campers each and every. "'Tickled pink, over the moon, five hops forward, "'no hops back, if you get my meaning.' "'No one did get Twitch's meaning exactly, "'but they all understood that there was now a larger group of friends, "'which left everyone feeling a buzz of excitement "'for the possibilities that might follow. "'Twitch accompanied Major Puff back to the burrow where cup of quiet tea was in order after such a harrowing morning. Magic disappeared before anyone could notice. The excitement of playing a trick had generated more energy than she knew what to do with, and Cece was back on the shipwreck, already removed the mask and untied the beak that was made with paint and scrap pieces lying about. More challenging was scrubbing off the paint applied to her feathers. She would continue to wash until they were completely white again, and she awaited the return of her two books." As for Duane, carrying those books carefully while walking alongside Handsome, who required even more explanation. So, you are telling me, Duane, that Twitch did not actually require emergency grooming? No, Handsome. I confess that that was a trick. I am somewhat perturbed. Are we not friends? Why did you not simply ask me to join you at the river? Would you have come to the river if I asked? Handsome paused to consider. He had to concede that if he was asked, he would have most definitely said no. Point taken, Duane. And what are you planning on telling the Major when he asks about the great black-beaked gall that is Cece? Soon, said Duane, it seemed like a lot to throw at him all at once. And besides, he did act very heroically today. He should be allowed to have his moment. Agreed, Handsome nodded. Etiquette demands such considerations. And the two friends parted company at Handsome's Field, and before Duane could go home to his cave, he did have to return Cece's books in the exact same condition that they were when he borrowed them, and so that was better done sooner rather than later. As he walked down the sloping trail that led past the berry bushes and the tasty grasses and finally spilled out onto Fabulous Beach, Duane had time to reflect on all that had happened. There were now two new friends in his life to get to know, and the gift of Twitch's name was well received. He could see that Major Puff and Handsome would no longer be at odds, and there was also a great story for all the friends to share with one another every now and again, each telling it from his or her own point of view.
Dwayne was proud of himself, too. He put together a complicated plan and was able to convince friends to take part. He accomplished something for the benefit of others. It was a good day.